It's the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast with your hosts, Stan Dryav and Nick Bracha. Welcome to the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast. Stan Dryav, Nick Braccia on deck. We're going to get into and go over the last couple of cards and... We're going to break down UFC Fight Night Apex, Woodley versus Burns for you guys. Nikolai, how are you, buddy? You know, Stan, I've been better. For about a week, I was the champion of the world. (laughs) And I didn't learn. I did not learn from champions who came before me. Men like James Buster Douglas. Men like (laughs) Anthony Ruiz. Men who, who got the gold, and instead of doubling down on their training... I fell into bad habits and bad patterns around terrible people. How cursing drugs, Nick. I should have been. It wasn't that. I should have been studying up for my picks. But instead, I started using various apps and delivery services um, to get table service. To essentially get <laughs> table service in my home with endless bottles of Cristal. My recycling. My recycling bin alone is like three, filled with three grand worth of bottles right now. I started nice. going to all sorts of, of terrible Zoom parties with bad people who had me up all hours of the night. I should have been training, and instead I was changing backgrounds and, and sharing risque emojis with never dwells. And that's what happens when you you let excellence go, go to your head, when you're not ready <laughs> to handle the weight that comes with the crown, is you slip. And that's how you go one in six in your picks. Since my fall, I've gotten really spiritual in the last couple of days. So I got a, I got a, a tattoo of, uh, of Siddhartha Gautama. And um, I think I found religion. And uh, this is going to be a, it's, it's going to be a new path. I did a lot of, I did a lot of thinking in jail. So you're saying that last week after thanking Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, <laughs> switching it up completely since he didn't help you win this event. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Also, <laughs> if any, we're gonna start. We're gonna start a GoFundMe for my for my credit card bills and my loans after just blowing everything that I won as champ before the endorsements were signed. I lost my title. Nick, you would think you're the veteran here, being that you outnumber me in age by something like I don't know, fifteen, twenty years. Is it? Fuck you. Ten years. I think ten <laughs> years. Nine years. I don't know. But <laughs> I think it's probably less than that. Uh, Nick. The MMA Geeks C-Level podcast, the C, should stand for championship. Because with a score that quadruples yours, Nick, at 8-2 and two now, I have 8 wins and you have 2. I am the undisputed champion of the MMA Geeks podcast. Winning a single round against me last week. Really had you feeling high and mighty, Nick. Well, I had a record of 4 wins and 2 losses on my picks. And you, you my friend, had the aforementioned 1 wins, 6 Lost. How did I have seven picks and you had six? We both uh, had seven picks initially, but then there was a fight that pulled out. Marvin Vittori versus Robertson. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, one in six for you, Nick. One win and six wrong. You've got six times as many wrong picks on this last event, Nick, than you do correct ones. I think that the C does not stand for championship, but in fact stands for comeback. And everybody loves a comeback story. And that's why I think with you with UFC 250, I'm gonna put that nose on the other side of your face. 
Nick, my nose has already been broken three times, but to be honest, I'm not even sure that you're qualified to make picks on this podcast <laughs> after that pitiful, pitiful performance. Now, granted, you're generally a good fight picker, and usually events you lose events to me by a close margin. But when I give out the kind of shellacking that I gave you over two events last week, it makes me feel like the GOAT, Nick. The greatest of all time. When we get into it, I think that we'll see that a lot of my losses were either split decisions or very questionable. There were a couple where I shit the bed, but honestly, I think I think I very easily could have been 5 and 2 uh, in these picks. That's a, uh, you know, no no gimmick, just like straight up. I really I do really think I got jobbed on a on a couple of these, and if you look at the MMA decisions, uh, consensus would would agree that I, I definitely picked much better than one and six. But let's get into it and see. Let's our listeners can figure out exactly how stupid <laughs> I am. Well, uh, while I agree with you, by the way, that Marlon Vera and Edson Barboza deserve the decisions. Uh, I you know Ricky Simone. One over Ray Borg. That was a very, bad pick. Very, on your end. Uh, very close. Very competitive fight. But yeah, I doubt. But you're but, right. It is the, a competitive right, fight. But, but the right decision. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, the damage that Borg uh, put down, I definitely wouldn't have a problem with him winning that fight. Eric Anders definitely didn't uh, look very good against Christoph Jocko. Uh, your other picks were Walt Harris, Nikolai. I mean, come on, come on, Nick. He had him there. For Anthony a Smith. Who got smoked, Nick, over the course of about um, twenty-two well, minutes? He won. He won the first two rounds. He had some really bad coaching, but those were. I mean, it was. It's not like Smith didn't belong in the octagon with him. Smith had a path to victory. He, he chose not to follow it. Let's start with the Glover Teixeira versus Anthony Smith card from Wednesday. Guys walked into that main event, and we had the younger guy in Smith versus the veteran in Teixeira. The younger guy, by the way, has plenty of experience, uh, even at a high level. On, on his own, he's had all the momentum. The only man he's lost to at light heavyweight is the GOAT at 205, John Jones. And here we are against Glover Teixeira, who's lost to some of the guys that Anthony Smith already beat. So the MMA math says big time in favor of Smith. But you do have to factor in other things, I guess. I mean, just looking at their records, right? Smith has uh, f- uh, 14 losses going into that event, whereas Teixeira had seven. Both of these guys have been at a pretty high level to share probably longer. So even if you look at the MMA math, uh, it's not that simple. Look, Teixeira paced himself like he does. Anthony Smith put out way too much output in the first round. He was too quick with his offense. He was expending a lot of that energy early. And I actually thought in the second round, Glover Teixeira started to take over and you know pretty clearly won that second round. And then third, fourth, and fifth were elementary. It's a very controversial fight because of the kind of exhaustion that Anthony Smith clearly was going through uh, toward the latter half of the fight and the fact that neither Jason Herzog nor Anthony Smith's corner were willing to stop the fight on his behalf. What are your thoughts on this whole situation, man? My thoughts on the situation are that Anthony Smith was styling on him for one and three quarters rounds. He did not... One and one quarter, maybe. Uh, I think he led more. He won more. He won at least half the second round, but um, I. He's Smith. Just I'm trying to think. I mean, Smith fought like he was a. He fought like he was a bantamweight or a featherweight, and he he's a big dude with a lot of weight. But with his range, he could have been essentially point point striking, jabbing, and kicking, and he's strong enough, I think, to keep Teixeira off of him. 
and he could if he had done that at half the pace for I don't see why he couldn't do that for five rounds his striking was creative and good he was just fighting twice as fast as he has to um he, he and he just he absolutely burned himself out and then you know you don't want to have no energy and get cornered by Glover Teixeira. Smith has had a problem in the past of backing up against the fence um, as a defensive maneuver uh, rather than moving left to right and getting caught. And that's the last place you want to be against Glover who can dump you uh, on your head from that position or just trap you. And he's got the, he's got, you know, if not the fastest, very accurate and technical hands. So I just think Smith had bad, bad coaching, bad fight IQ in there and burned himself out. I don't know what he thought was going to happen, but the way you go into that fight is ready to fight five rounds, largely from the outside, and just don't play into the guy's strengths. Yeah, Anthony Smith actually ended up putting out 85 strikes, 37 landed, but uh, I'm sorry, 82 strikes in that first round, put out 92 in the second round. That's a very high pace. Yeah, it really is, especially for that weight division. I mean, I'll put it to you guys this way. In his fight against John Jones, the man ended up putting out a total of 66 strikes throughout the fight. And he only landed 36, which was basically his his number of landed in the first round against Teixeira. So definitely Smith did not pace himself. He blew his load. But here's the thing. When you really watch that first round carefully, you realize that Smith, like it looked like he was throwing a lot of jabs and a lot of jab crosses. That's most of what was landing the occasional kind of front kick was uh, hitting the market as well. But when you watch on replay, you realize that Glover Teixeira, being the veteran that he is, he was rolling with most of those shots. And maybe two, maybe three of them were landing clean in that first round. But what I did notice on actually I ended up rewatching the fight because I was curious if, you know, it was late uh, when I was watching it live and I was kind of dozing a little bit. And I was curious whether the stoppage was really kind of that uh, bad, that obvious going into it. And, Glover Teixeira landed several clean body shots on Smith, and that deserves some mention as well when it comes to Smith being exhausted shortly after. In that second round, Smith looked pretty fresh for about a quarter round, but he barely—he probably didn't land a single thing. And then he ended up getting hurt in that round, taken down. Uh, I just feel like it, pretty early on, things were going against him. Now, there's a lot of focus about his corner and the fact that they were giving him too much advice. I'd like to look back at some of his prior fights to see if they're any less busy in the corner there, because... They are speaking at all moments, at all times. And we had a couple of fighters on the broadcast, and I think Paul Felder and Daniel Cormier talking about how they prefer if their corner lets them breathe a little bit and lets them fight on instinct, but then, you know, to come in with the occasional bit of guidance. That wasn't the case here. Non-stop yelling in his way. And when he came into that corner and he would say stuff like, my teeth are falling out, moments after he handed one of his actual detached teeth to Jason Herzog, the referee, in the middle of the fourth round, um, his corner had no thoughts about stopping the fight. They just told him that he has just one round and he has to put it all out there. It just looked like he was getting more and more tired. Um, It is weird. Like Jason Herzog, who I give so much credit to, he was the uh, referee in the octagon with those two men. He ended up taking responsibility and said, the buck stops at me essentially and that I will learn from this and I will be better. I think he is, if not the best referee in the business, he is definitely one of the top two or three. And I don't I, I think given what Anthony Smith was doing defensively, right? He was doing just enough not to get stopped. 
at all times, right? And he was showing that he's willing to throw. He was showing that he's willing to switch position and keep fighting to get up, even though he wasn't really, really getting up. Um, and for the referee, that was enough. I think a lot of the onus belongs to the corner, who should have known their fighter well enough and should have known to maybe not tell him to throw out quite as much. Although at the end of the first round, they did tell him to take a lot of pep off of his shots. Definitely yeah, I, a weird situation. Yeah, we're a little a little bit weird. I mean, from their point of view, maybe they thought they won the first two and were down 10-9 in those other two, though I can't really see that. Maybe they thought that they still had a chance in the in the fifth. I I don't know. But the thing, one thing that did put me off was Anthony Smith came out yesterday and called Jason Herzog a coward um, for expressing his point of view. And I have a pretty good opinion of Smith up in, up until that moment. But I think that if if a referee believes he can he can wants to take some work that he did and consider it an opportunity to reflect and improve on his job and to admit fallibility. I think that's a sign of maturity, and I think that calling I think that calling him a coward is. Pro- I hope that's just Anthony Smith's pride talking, because um, I think it's the opposite. I think it was a courageous thing to do. I couldn't agree with you more. I wish we had more people that were willing to be held accountable, uh, even when something isn't necessarily their fault. Right? It is somewhat arguable, at least. But yeah, I give the guys so much credit when there are other top referees who either say absolutely nothing or get very defensive and start attacking the whether it be the commentators or the or the other coaches or the fighters uh, that say something about him. So definitely a lot of respect to Herzog for that. I agree with you there, and I do think for Anthony Smith it was I think for a guy with I think pride is the big factor there for a guy that. You know, it was fairly confident generally. I think that he's having trouble with the idea that, like, the whole world thinks that he got beat up so badly that he shouldn't have been allowed to keep getting beat up as long as he did. I think for a guy that considers himself to be a top-level fighter, that's hard to take in. And I think that was a factor as well. I assume that's part of the reason, at least, why we haven't heard from his corner yet. Maybe they were told not to speak to the MMA world and to whether it be, you know, apologize or, or for, for not having stopped it sooner or what have you. Um, so, yeah, it, it, an odd situation. I, d- I will say, though, you, you've done this before with other fighters where, like, you seem to like them just fine. And then one situation happens, they're emotional and, and they say something and you've decided <laughs> they're the, the, the spawn of the earth. Like... Good people make mistakes, whether it be yeah, Tony Ferguson saying... telling Khabib off or Anthony Smith telling Herzog off. Good people make mistakes, and it doesn't mean they're the worst person in the world. I'm not down uh, on. Yeah, that's why I said I'd like to think. I'd like to think it was his pride. I'm not down on. I'm not down on Anthony Smith. There are. Yeah, I do get a, a little emotional sometimes. I think Tony Ferguson's a, a great fighter. I'm going to root for him against most people, but not against Gagey or Khabib. I feel you. Uh, ben Rothwell won a Ooh. weird decision over Vince Saperu. Vince basically just got tired. Uh, maybe he didn't need to cut weight, so he just kind of uh, half-assed it against the slower Rothwell who plotted his way to scoring more points in the second half of the fight. I don't think there's a whole lot to talk about there. Drew Dober is looking fucking spectacular, Nikolai. Yes. You, this you, man you is fighting this. at 100. Yes, sir. He's fighting at 155 pounds. I, I had a fair bit of confidence in him after Alexander Hernandez's last couple of performances. And if you look at his record, Nick, he's now 6-1 and one in his last seven in the UFC. I mean, the kid's been really putting it together. I'd like to see him get a winning streak going that's bigger than three in the UFC. And I think his next fight will give him the opportunity to do that. His last two wins against Alexander Hernandez and Nazrat Hakparast. These are like fair-level prospects in the UFC, especially Nazrat Hakparast. Um, so these are really, really impressive victories for a guy with a 
22 now and 9 record. He is looking, I'm sorry, 23 and 9 record. He's looking really good training up at Elevation there with Elevation Fight Team. And I'm very excited about him as a prospect. I want to see um, him it, Felder, Hooker, Poirier, uh, Fahea. I like it. Iaquinta, I, I actually think, I want to see, I want to see, I'd like to see how Iaquinta get a win before that happens. But, um, I think Hooker might be matched up already, but Drew Dober, Dan Hooker would be some violence. Oh, I agree. That would be lovely. I would not make a single complaint about it. Maybe Dustin Poirier. I don't know if Dustin would be willing I, to take that fight. Um, I yeah, think probably not. Probably not. I still think he's in the. I mean, he's in that mix of the top, uh, top four or five guys. I think he's looking for more matchups. Hooker's knocking on the door, but frankly, he's not that far off of getting his his tail kicked by Edson Barbosa. True. Yeah, I, I would suggest Charles Oliveira, but I feel like Charles is really on an upward trajectory and deserves a really big fight himself next up. So yeah, they had him and Diego Ferreira scheduled to fight at one point. I mean, that's going to be a tough matchup for anyone. Like both guys, honestly, that would be a really fun one to watch. That could be a main event on a fight night. I wouldn't complain about that. It would just be a shame to knock off both uh, contenders. I Ricky think Fahey, Simone, Fahey, sorry, one quick. Yeah. I think Fahey is booked. I can't remember against who. I got to look it up, but I think they booked his next fight. Let's take a look and see who it is. I'm going to look at his record right now. He's supposed to fight him last. Diego Ferreira, as of right now, doesn't doesn't show up scheduled anywhere. Plus, I feel like the next couple of events okay. for the UFC aren't even kind of planned out yet. So uh, I would be somewhat surprised if they had him booked. But it's certainly possible for that uh, Amanda Nunes card next month. Uh, we had Ricky Simone pick up a... Fairly tight decision, a split decision over Ray Borg. And you're right, I, I kind of alluded to it being a decisive fight. It wasn't that decisive because Ray Borg was doing serious damage with his hands. When I say serious damage, you know, it's not like Ricky Simone was being knocked around the octagon, but he was taking clean, fast punches to the head and body. Ricky Simone, though, is relentless with takedowns. The man can get him again and again. He's got cardio just insane cardio, and I think uh, fighting against the guy who can make 125, I think Ricky Simone had a good size advantage too. Yeah, he did. That's the thing. I, I underestimated uh, Simone's ability to stay on top of Borg and to wrestle him down. I thought that Borg would be more effective in scrambles and would spend less time on his back. Um, I I didn't have a clear sense of the size disparity, if and I do think that's why um, Borg was less confident and threw... You know, he was throwing those three, four-punch combos and just snapping them off. They were landing, but he didn't do it frequently enough to get the decision. Yeah, I mean, I always lean on the side of damage over control. And I'm quickly going to look at the stats for the fight. It looks like Ricky Simone landed 67. He did outland him. To be fair, I, I would have thought that it went the other way. So not only did Ricky Simone outland him by about 20 strikes, he also got seven takedowns on him, Nick. Yeah, Borg's, That's it was just crazy. that Borg's shots were heavier shots. That's it. <coughs> yeah, uh, same page. And it seems certainly in that third round that Borg outlanded him and, and, and did plenty of damage. Uh, but uh, Ricky Simone, somebody to look forward to. Ray Borg, man, he's a little small for 135, probably a little too big for 125, but there's not going to be an in-between, so he's going to need to uh, figure out one way or the other. But again, he didn't look bad here. Uh, Arlovsky won a decision over, you know, what looks like possibly a future prospect in Philip Lenz, Thiago Moises uh, beat Michael Johnson. Michael Ooh. Johnson now one and seven uh, in his last eight fights. Oh, I'm sorry, one and six in his last eight. Which I mean, I can only imagine the UFC is going to be letting this guy go. He's 19 and I feel 16. Feel bad for the guy. So talented, overall. continues to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. 
Yeah, he looked good in that first round, but man, as soon as Moises got that takedown, it was over. Uh, Eubanks dominated Sarah Marais. Uh Good on her. Sarah Marais is not exactly a wrecked opponent, but she needed a bit of a leg up. They actually had close to even uh, record going into this fight, and, and uh, Sajara Eubanks is now past the 500 mark, whereas Sarah Marais is 6-6. Six and six. And uh, we have Omar Morales, who took a decision over Gabriel Benitez. Really good, entertaining fight. Uh, Brian Kelleher with a beautiful knockout of Hunter Azur. Uh, and I think, uh, unless you have some thoughts, Nikolai, we can move on. No, just to the, the cut. The cut. There was that late, the shin cut. I believe on Benitez, where you could like see through his leg to his bone, and they flashed to that. that That's was, right. That That's was, right. That was, yes. that was unpleasant. We didn't need to see the, like the gaping insides of anyone's, uh, you know, anatomy. But you know, I don't know. I, I I don't have much of an issue. If there's a cut, I'm I'm open to to seeing just how bad it is. Um, luckily, there was no reason to stop this fight in this case. But you know, certainly if you're going to stop the goddamn fight, you show us that gash. I want to see every Ugh. detail. Ugh. All right. So that's that was that card. Let's talk uh, U, UFC on ESPN eight. Overheem uh, versus Walt Harris. The UFC really played uh, Walt Harris's uh, Walt Harris's potential triumph over tragedy story following. The unfortunate uh, and tragic murder of his of his stepdaughter, and you know I thought Harris looked a little heavy go, uh, going into this. He definitely looked like he was carrying more weight or chubbier than usual. Um, who knows what he's just been through physically, emotionally over the last six months, or what his COVID training camp was like. But um, he's a big athletic guy. He looked really, really big in there uh, compared to Overeem, who's obviously no. Um, you know, not a midget himself. He's a seriously big no. dude, and we. I thought Harris would land something early, and he did. He took he uh, he knocked Overeem down. There was it, there was some question over whether uh, Overeem would survive the storm. I thought it was fair. I mean, I'm someone who picked Walt Harris, but I was glad that the I believe it was Herb Dean, but I can't recall. Um, gave gave or it might have been Denver Guiada. Um, gave Alistair. Uh, time he he watched his eyes. I didn't think that Alistair ever looked out of it. He's been around so long that I think all the refs know when he's had enough. Um, yeah, and he and he came back strong. He came back strong on his birthday. Uh, uh, Paul Felder held, handled the post fight interview with Walt Harris very elegantly, and uh, Al and Alistair, who in his UFC stint, I'm not quite. I don't quite know his reputation from from dream and pride, but he's all, he always seems to be a gentleman with respect to his fellow fighters. Uh, what, you know, gracious, gracious in defeat and humble in victory. And it was no, it was no different here. So I thought, uh, it's kind, you know, kind, kind of a bummer, but even just like showing up and getting through it and fighting one of the best heavyweights ever, um, on that stage was a good, sh you know, good showing from Walt Harris and Alistair Overeem got a much needed victory on his birthday. Yeah. I, I don't know how I feel about the UFC using the it death felt, of Walt Harris's stepdaughter to promote it him felt, because it was it felt just, excessive. You can't ignore it. Yeah, it, man. It, it, you can't ignore it. But it was. Like, I hear that. It was like we. It was like yeah, we know. Like let's. It's just I thought they I thought that they overdid it. It it's not a it's it's UFC. It's not a true crime. Uh, they were giving us like uh, like, well, like it, true crime yeah. pack packages. I didn't need to see videos of Walt, of Walt Harris pleading before they had found her body. Um, it's a tragic story. Our hearts obviously go out to Walt Harris in the UFC. Um, should should acknowledge it and be respectful of the situation, but I felt like it did go over the line past, uh, past that and into uh, kind of oversaturating the fight narrative with the story. 
and yeah, it left me feeling a little queasy as well. I think we didn't we didn't talk about that before, but it seems like you and I had the same reaction. Yeah, man. I, like again, and and I'll be honest with you, I like I wouldn't have had a problem with maybe one one piece on it, but throughout the event, you get piece after piece after piece of of Walt it was talking the old, it was about the it only story showing clips. Yep. Yeah, man. And to be honest with you, I mean, I don't know. It just felt like the UFC was taking advantage of it, and and I thought maybe Walt Harris wasn't in on that at all. And then Walt Harris made a statement uh, about the loss, and naturally, like he brought up his daughter at the end of that statement too. And he said, first, let me thank uh, Alistair for sharing the octagon with me tonight. You're a class act brother and a legend. Tonight wasn't my night, but you best believe I'll be back better. Thanks to everyone for all your love and support. Can't say it enough. We learn and grow. And then he goes, baby girl, daddy loves you. And I promise I will keep pushing forever. Anaya. Now, like, I don't know that he needed to address her in that statement about his loss. Like, I just feel like it's oh, so I was, much of this. I was fine. I was fine with that. I would much rather that yeah. the message came from him and what he's expressing. Plenty of times we've seen people after all of that emotion, after all the physical exhaustion, what they go through um, in the cage, ready, ready to die, with only the referee in there uh, to step in in favor of their well-being. We've seen fighters acknowledge. Uh, people suffering, uh, loved ones suffering, teammates suffering from diseases, coaches that have passed away, things like that. I, that I've got no problem because that that's Harris. That's Harris. It's Harris expressing himself in the opportunity that he has. I feel much more much differently about that than than the constant uh, packages provided by the UFC. Now he did acknowledge that the UFC um, provided quite a bit of help and support. I don't know what the extent of that was, but if they did. Uh, I'm really glad. I'm really glad for that. It's just as far as the promotional and marketing brief for this event goes, I would have I would have liked it to have been dialed down a bit more. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the UFC you know sent over a hundred grand or something. I think they put up uh, something like like ten to a hundred thousand dollars as a reward if they found her, and then a couple other people matched uh, that amount. So yeah, I mean this definitely puts him in the mainstream. Like I'm looking at Forbes.com. Uh, that you know th- that wrote a story on his loss and his statement. Like, it's definitely putting him in the mainstream a little bit. I think the search for his daughter, the fact that uh, the the fact that this is just such a heartbreaking story of a young girl, you know, coming to her tragic death. I think there's definitely kind of a mainstream aspect to it, and I, I just, I'm just not crazy about just this overall uh, overall agreement that they all seem to have that he needs to be promoted with her in every goddamn sentence. Uh, but yeah, as far as the fight goes, Walt Harris, you know, he's really only explosive. He's really only dangerous in the first round from what I've seen. And that's really almost all of his knockdowns have been in that first round. Right. Uh, I watched the fight that he took against Arlovsky and it just seemed very clear to me. He looked dangerous and fast early in the second round, he looked significantly slower and less aggressive. In the third round, he threw very little and had very little speed. The guy doesn't really have that serious of a gas tank, and uh, I would imagine that the COVID situation is not making it easier for him to get a solid training camp in. It makes sense. The reason I picked Overeem is because he's a veteran, man. I didn't expect him to survive like that, I'll be honest with you. Uh, Overeem doesn't usually survive it once he gets hurt badly. I think... It, it goes to the credit, like you said, of Dan Mergliata. Also, the fact that Walt Harris really blew his load because he was trying to finish, which obviously decreases chances of having any energy after that. But Overeem, being the veteran that he did, uh, did what he had to do in there. And yeah, Overeem realized he was in kind of a weird situation. He was walking a tightrope, 
uh, fighting a guy that just lost his daughter and it was kind of a major story so he was extremely extremely nice he's not usually this nice to his opponents and he doesn't have to be of course he's usually kind of neutral like not not too friendly in this case he uh he was particularly nice to walt and i think that makes sense i know we want to move on one more thing about that fight because i'm thinking about walt harris going in for the finish and i actually think that uh Al- the fact that alistair does have a strong jujitsu game that Harris was going in hard, but a little bit tentative. I actually think that if Alistair had gotten up, the fight would have been much more likely to have, uh, to have been stopped. But I felt like Harris was expending a lot of energy while also not completely going for it because he was worried about getting caught. That's, yeah, I guess that's possible. I felt like he was really going for the kill. I thought there were two or three moments where a lot of refs would have stopped the fight. And uh, luckily for Alistair, that was not the case here. Uh, like I said, I've never seen Alistair, even when he was on steroids, he doesn't really come back from these kinds of knockdowns. Even in the kickboxing world where you actually have a chance, about 15, 12, 15 seconds to get back up to your feet. But uh, but yeah, yeah, good on Alistair. You know, beating another prospect, this is what he does. The people that beat Alistair are the very best heavyweights on the planet. And I think something has to be said about where Alistair Overeem is at this point in his career versus some of the other guys that were competing when he was... Uh, in his heyday, guys like Shogun, guys like Vanderly Silva, guys who are uh, Chuck Liddell, Randy Couture, uh, were competing at the highest level when Alistair Overeem was. And here we are so many years later, and Alistair Overeem still finds himself in the top 10 of the heavyweight division. Uh, props to him on that. Claudia Gadelia, Angela Hill, a really close fight. I think the argument could be made either way. I, I thought Angela did really well. Like, she surprised me in that first round. Uh, looked good from pretty early on. And even though she had given up a takedown or two, she didn't take much damage, was able to get back up to her feet. And overall outstruck, I think, Claudia Gadelia. Although Claudia yeah. really stepped on it in the third round. And I think that was a big part of the reason she took the decision. Uh, first round could have kind of gone either way, I think. And that third round sealed it for her. So unfortunately uh, for Angela, two of those judges had Gadelia winning the first round. Yeah, I thought I thought Angela did enough. I thought she just looked fresher. I thought she had more on her punches. I thought she threw more creative strikes. And Gadea just always looked like she was kind of like struggling with her gas um, and and struggling with range. And just, you know, like we said, it's a, there's a fighter that seems to be improving it on the upswing versus one who seems to be uh, getting a little more sluggish, uh, especially compared to her early fight against Joanna Champion. And I don't know that Angela is ever going to go in there against uh, Joanna Champion and have success, but I thought I thought that she gave the superior performance in this bout. Yeah, I think Jan Jacek might be a bad matchup for Angela. She but is. Yeah. At, at this point, you have to say Angela Hill is one of the world's best 115-pound fighters. She is 3-2 and two in her last five. Granted, 3-2 and two doesn't look impressive, but... A lot of folks think she deserved that Claudia Gadelia decision, and that Yaonin Yan decision could have easily gone her way. That was extremely, extremely close fight, which would have put her now on a uh, what is it six fight win streak. So Angela Hill really, really is uh, hitting her prime. I think right now where her skills is kind of meeting her maturity level and experience level in MMA. And even though she is in her I think mid or early thirties. Uh, she's really, really at an excellent point in her career, 34 years old. I, I look forward to seeing her compete next. Who would you like to see her against, Nick? You know, it makes sense for her to – has she um, – I have to look it up. Has she fought Esparza? She has not uh, – only on the Ultimate Fighter where Esparza took her down and submitted her in the first round, if I remember yeah, correctly. Yeah, that's – okay. I think 
I mean, especially if she had won this fight, but I would still like to see her. Let's just assume, let's look at this fight like a victory because it was close enough to be a win. And, but her Achilles heel is the Esparza type fighter. Any striker, she's going to be in it. Um, but if you're, you know, Espar someone like Esparza though can, uh, can potentially ground her. So I think if she can um, stay on her feet, sprawl and brawl and kickbox, against a known grinder like that then it only ups her ceiling and what it's like what better time than now but to see that with Esparza coming off a, a victory over Michelle Watterson that kind of pissed everybody off because she made Michelle Watterson have a boring fight and her approach just kind of sucked but Gadea and Esparza are already sparring on Twitter um, with Esparza calling out Gadea for having greased in their earlier matchup so with the shit talk it's likely that that'll be the match that gets made but I'd much I'd much rather watch uh, Angela Hill's ascent continue and see her use, use her skills to challenge Carla. Yeah, I would be very interested in that matchup actually against Carla specifically. Back when they fought on the Ultimate Fighter, Angela Hill literally had almost no ground game. She didn't really train in it. Uh, back then, she used to train here in New York City, Evolution Muay Thai, and spent just a little bit of time out in the Midwest somewhere training with an MMA camp before that Ultimate Fighter series started. So, huge, huge difference in Angela Hill's skill and, and ability since then. So I would be interested in watching that, but I think you're right. It's more likely that Esparza will be matched up with Gadelia since they called each other out. Dan Ige continues his ascent. I thought he did not deserve the decision against Edson Barboza, but he got it anyway, and uh, he's looking good, man. He's really putting together a very serious streak at 145. He is now undefeated in six straight, Nick. Super, yeah, super impressive. I, I love him. I think he's a great fighter. That said, after for dropping to 145 and giving what I thought was a great performance at his new weight class, for his chin holding up um, and getting a bum decision, I felt I was sort of heartbroken for Edson Barbosa, who looked really yeah, who looked he you know, who just looked very defeated, not by his performance but by the decision. And I, you know, I, I kind of I really thought he deserved this, and he got jobbed. Yeah, I'm there with you largely. Um, so the last three wins for. Uh, Dan Ige, even if he didn't truly deserve the Barboza win, he's got that win over a former top five or six lightweight. He's got Mursad Bektik, who's a prospect, 13-2 and two when they fought. And he beat Kevin Aguilar, who was 17-1 and one, uh, when they fought. So really on a good stride. I will say that his last two wins uh, are... Uh, our uh, split decisions. So yep. very, and he's, so, he's so, great. You know, he's could, fun. Could have gone either way. He's yep. a Christoph I mean, Jotko. Yep. Christoph Jotko picked up a really nice win over Eric Anders. I mean, the guy's just willing to keep his chin, uh, able to keep his chin out of danger. He's, he knows his chin cannot hold up to heavy pressure, and he does a really good job of it. He's developed a style that works, and uh, good on him, man. Uh, Eric Anders plotting around, hoping for the best, just doesn't really work at a high level on the main. Well, let me just uh, – my point on Eric Anders mm -hmm. is that it's – I mean, for, and I'm not saying this because he's coming from the same sport, but he's a lot he – he was a football player, right, a la, Dan a la Greg Hardy? No. Wasn't was so he it's he's not competing at a weight class like Hardy is where that kind his size and athleticism combo is going to work. Like the guys are too fast, the guys have better gas uh, and better skills. I almost think it'd be great for him to like not cut and just fight at heavyweight. I think he would I think I he mean, would have he, more success he there. Did, he did compete at 205 for a little while there, but the guy's extremely slow for any of those divisions. Like he's a, but you're right. At 185, it's worse, right? It's Where worse. the skill level's higher and those guys are faster. 
so yeah, same page with me there. I think for him, it's just like a guy that whose strengths are power and explosiveness and strength. You're not really going to be able to have those strengths against light heavyweights anyway. At least you have somewhat of an edge against those middleweights when it comes to that specifically, even though the speed disparity is even worse than at 205. Yadong Song picked up a controversial decision win over Marlon Vera. I thought Vera deserved it. Uh, both you and I agreed that Vera, uh, Vera was the pick going into the event. But it's unfortunate for Vera, who's been on a really good stride. And it's weird because Yadong Song, after last time, uh, you know, ending up in a draw in a fight that, to be honest with you, he did win two of the rounds on. He got a point taken away when I rewatched it. Uh, he's, you know, he's looking really good and still undefeated in the UFC. And I think he's only 22 years old, Nick. It's, uh, it's you know, a good fighter. Good fighter from that region. Um, and he'll be good business. But I did not, I think he's got some work to do. And yeah. he, I don't think he deserved deserved the win here. Uh, Kevin Holland, however, did deserve the win uh, when he floored yeah, Anthony yeah. Hernandez about 40 seconds into the fight. Uh, Giga Chikadze did a, a workmanlike performance against the late replacement Irwin Rivera. Um, yeah, well, I look forward to uh, watching in the future. Yeah, when he's in shape. I mean, he, bring, he brings the fight. He's not boring, that's for sure. Uh, yep. Nate, Nate Landwehr sounded like a knight when he was talking after the fight. This was the Battle of the Rednecks. Um Elkins yes, sir. and Nate. Actually, I think Nate is a bigger. Sounds like a bigger redneck than Darren Elkins. Much, um, and which surprised me. But uh, yeah, what a, what a, a weirdo! But he'll have his fan base. It's, he seems like he should be like Kobe Covington, Kobe Covington's like little sidekick or something. No, 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 no. He he is Nate. I'm just gonna say real quick. He is actually that guy. Like he's not he's not making it up, and he doesn't oh, have I his know. manager writing it for him. He yeah. is that guy. So he he's actually genuine. I I'm into the guy. He's a fucking character. He's wacky and crazy and entertaining as all hell. Um. Yeah. It was a, it was a very very interesting fight. Uh, Mac, Mac Brown fight against Miguel Baeza uh, was kind of sad. Um, he dropped yeah, Baeza, he, dro- he dropped Miguel and then he got dropped himself. I just think that the the immortal ones uh, day, days are numbered. Um, he formerly had a, a pretty fantastic chin and his liver was the problem over the last three or four years. We've seen him get knocked out um, a couple of times. Yes, always always brings it. Just a great fighter. Was a journeyman when he was on Tough about a decade ago, um, and his. Just you know, had a great career. He came right up to those fights against Lawler and Hendricks, where he was competing with the top five of the division. Nothing else for him to do um, to prove himself in the sport. Just you know, it was an awesome, awesome fighter and career to watch. I don't have any interest in watching him uh, get punched again. Yeah, but I can't wait. So I agree with you. I can't wait to watch Miguel Baeza again. He looks like a real promising prospect. He survived the grit and nastiness of uh, Matt Brown, who looked. Pretty solid. He was hitting so fucking hard in that first round and uh, survived enough to to get that knockout win. Look forward to seeing this kid make his way up the division. I think he's got some promise, possibly a, possibly a future contender. I still think it's somewhat early to tell, of course. That about does it for these two cards, Nick. Let's take a break, come back, and break down Tyron Woodley versus Gilbert Burns coming up this weekend. This is for the dozens and dozens of the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast listeners. Knowing that you're a bunch of social media influencers, mavens, and mentors, I'd like to ask you to use your prestige to let people know about the podcast. We put a lot of work and research into this series, and we'd love to grow our listenership and expose more people to it. If you know someone who's into MMA but has not given us a listen, give them a heads up. I mean, who doesn't want to hear Nick and I taking turns boasting about the prior week's results, am I right?
Back on the MMA Geek Sea Level Podcast, Nick and I are about to make our draft picks for this event. About to break down the card for you guys. Nick, last week, I heroically, heroically scored big. Got almost every damn pick correctly. And part of that was because I got to pick first. So, Nikolai, this time, I'm letting you choose the first fighter. All right. And this isn't going to be an easy one. There's a couple, you know, I've got a few fights that could go first, but I think there's one, and it's the fight with the biggest odds. I'd love to skip it because I'm a good guy, but I'm actually a fan of both of these ladies, both as fighters and because they're pretty on Instagram. But I've got to go with Mackenzie Dern over uh, Hannah Cyphers out of the out of the Carolinas. The Brazilian... Um, you know, returned after a 17-month break following the birth of her child. She got uh, pretty pieced up by Amanda Rebus, uh, who turns it, who it, it turns out is a is a really good all-around competitor. Mackenzie Dern, you're not sure watching her um, compete if she's. It's funny, competes an interesting word. She doesn't seem to go about it like much of a competitor. She's extremely skilled, but she seems so happy-go-lucky all the time. Has a seems like she's got a very like eclectic, interesting lifestyle, and really just seems like a don't worry, be happy person. I think that's great. It's not a disposition you find in the in, a, in cage fighting very often, um, but she's just an extremely talented grappler, and she's very strong and pretty big, pretty broad for the weight class. Not particularly tall, I don't think, but she's she's you know she's got a big, strong build, and she's taking on Hannah Cyphers, who is uh, I think a, a good boxer with some pop, like some real pop, but she's like, to me, she looks like an atom weight. And I just got to believe that Dern's size is one way or the other uh, via a combination of technique and muscle is she's going to find, you know, Cyphers is going to find herself probably in like side control very quickly. Uh, you know, in, in Mackenzie's side control, at the mercy of Mackenzie, I should say. And um, I think from there, there's just, based on the experience, what I perceive as an experience difference in jujitsu, there's just a really high chance that she gets pieced up. Um, with Cypher's boxing, if these if these women were bigger, if there if there were meaning, um, if if you know knockouts and real real damage from you know two to three punch combos. Um, was more of a factor in this weight class. I, I would think you know maybe be you know the fight starts on the feet. It maybe she maybe she can land some stuff uh, as counter shots to some of Mackenzie's kind of she's who's got power, but she's got these just throws like these whirling haymakers. Um, but I think I think Cyphers probably gets overwhelmed by the size uh, and grappling technique and and tapped out uh, probably in the back half of the first round. Yeah, I'm. Along the same kind of thought path with you on this one, I think Dern is probably going to take the fight. Hannah Cyphers, as you alluded to, she's got pretty good power on her right hand. It's not that she's super technical standing, but she does have a particular amount of pop, as you said, especially at 115. Um, so she has a small chance, I suppose. But if Mackenzie Dern didn't get knocked out in her last fight, I don't expect that to happen here. The fact of the matter is Hannah Cyphers gave up takedowns to Angela Hill, gave up three takedowns to Jody Escabel, who I don't know if she's ever won a fight in the UFC. Um, she gave up a takedown to Macy Barber, which I guess is not much to be ashamed of. But the bottom line is that both Angela Hill and Macy Barber finished her on the ground 
with ground and pound. And I expect that Mackenzie Dern can do a thing or two on the floor if she gets the opportunity here. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure what it is. Uh, I, I'm not sure what it is that makes these two your favorite. I mean, Hannah Cyphers is a pretty girl. She's very odd. And she's me, fun. I mean, she's fun. She's like, you know, she's like skin and deer and shit. And listen, the same way I like Roxy, I like Ma. I, I'm always drawn to modest, endearing, and honest uh, fighters who perceive it from. And this is maybe this is just a bullshit thing in my head, but the you know the notion of the respectful martial artist in this world of cage fighting holds you know holds appeal to me. And with all of this, all the pomp and circumstance of the UFC. You know, a, pa- a painfully shy Southerner who is, you know, can get has the courage to get in a cage and punch people in the face is an endearing quality to me. I also like like underdogs. I think Mackenzie Mackenzie Dern on, uh, is the opposite. She seems she's I don't want to necessarily call her flamboyant, but she's an exuberant extrovert um, with a wonderful personality. I think they're both really interesting characters, and and the characters of the competitors is a big draw for me into this world of mixed martial arts. Yeah, uh, I like Mackenzie Dern to get that submission, to get it done here against Cypher. Cypher's takedown defense and overall ground game has not been impressive enough to assume that she can realistically... I mean, she can survive to a decision here. I just don't think it's super likely, given how she's been finished in her two losses in the UFC to much lower-level grapplers thus far. So on the same page with you on your first pick, Nikolai. My first pick is going to be Roosevelt Roberts to take Ah. out Brock Weaver. That was my other pick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Roberts has looked really good in the UFC thus far. He's already taken his prospect loss to Vince Pichel a couple of fights ago, but dominated Alexander Yakovlev, who's a really tough, really good, scrappy, experienced veteran. Uh, Daryl Horcher, Thomas Gifford, these are not like the biggest names, right, that he's beating in the UFC thus far, but Brock Weaver isn't either. In fact, Brock Weaver didn't look very good in his UFC debut against Rodrigo Vargas. Vargas no. is not known as a very high-level fighter, but Vargas basically was dominating him until the inexplicable, until the illegal knee that he landed. Which <laughs> hang on, wait, back, back up for a minute. There, inexplicable. Let's, we'll, let's do this together. Okay. Inexplicable. Inexplicable. Today's word is inexplicable. You know what? Today's word is douchebag. God damn it. <laughs> I've never seen someone tap out on vocabulary before. <laughs> yeah. You were like you were like Ch- you were like Chael Sonnen, and inexplicable was uh, was Anderson Silva. You were pounding on its leg. You know what, Nick? I'm glad that we're seven and two in my favor in this competition. This is all I have to say as a comeback there. <laughs> Whatever. Um, I just know that the co- the combo I just threw is the one that they're going to show on the replay. <laughs> You're right about that. So yeah, Roosevelt Roberts. I expect him to pick up a decision here. There's a chance he can get a finish. Uh, Brock Weaver's a tough guy. He's a freaking character. Like He's somebody that I look forward to rooting for in the near future. I just feel like him going up against a very serious prospect here on short notice is not best case. Yeah, I agree with you. I feel like who knows how, who knows what the UFC booking psychology is, but sometimes when guys win a fight uh, on a DQ or something, as Brock Weaver did when he was, I think, and I think you'd agree with me, pretty clearly losing. Yeah. They get, you know, they get put in the winners column, and the UFC generally matches up winners and winners. And Roberts won his previous fight, right? His last fight. Yeah. We could check that out, but I think he's coming off. Yeah, a he win. did. Yeah, he's definitely coming yeah. off one. So, it's um, 
I think that sometimes the guy who's coming off a win but not really a win gets gets a, a, a more unfavorable matchup than if he was coming off of a real win. Um, I think for Brock so, Weaver, this is more of a realization that the UFC made that he's probably not the prospect they expected him to be. He was a big favorite going into that UFC debut in which he was dominated until the disqualification win. So I, yep. I think it's a, the UFC matchmakers realizing that he's not anything special necessarily and we can feed him to Roosevelt Roberts. And if he surprises us for some reason, then we've got a character on our hands. So it all works out. Okay. Um, my, my next pick, I'm going to go with Casey Kenny over Lewis Smolka. Um, I just, I think you're talking about, a guy, I've got to check their ages, but I, um, I just, I still view Kenny as a, as a guy who's, uh, been impressive in both, uh, his wins, you know, his wins against Borg and Manny Bermudez. And I thought, you know, he wasn't terrible if, I mean, I you might remember better than me in his fight against Mirab, uh, Um, but I just think that, uh, you know, and we've got uh, Smolka coming, you know, coming off of a win. But I just, I just think that Kenny's got a, a bigger upside. Is it a better? Um, um, he's well. Smolka's twenty eight. Kenny is. Tw- Kenny's actually older than Smolka. That blows my mind. Yeah, Smolka started in the UFC very early, very young. Huh. And Ke- yeah, so Kenny, he just, fe- he just feels a little bit more like a hot prospect, um, and. Smolka since his return, I guess he's doing. I guess he's doing okay. I just really liked what Kenny showed uh, during most of the fight against Borg, and subsequently against against Bermudez. Um, I just think he's a little. I just think he's. It's it's one of those things where it just feels like it's this guy's. It's this guy's time, um, more so, and I think the, his level of competition overall has been uh, much stronger than what what Smolka's faced uh, the last couple of years. Yeah, I would agree with you there, and that was going to be my next pick as well. Casey Kenny is a very high-level, high-skilled, I would say pretty high-IQ overall fighter. I think losing to Mirab Devashvili because he has taken you down 28 times isn't the worst thing in the world at 135. That man has the strength of like a like a pretty hefty 155-pounder, uh, Devashvili does, and he's fighting at 135, throwing these guys around, getting takedown after takedown, even against the wrestlers. So not a whole lot to be ashamed of in that one. Uh, prior to that, Casey Kenny beat Manny Bermudez, uh, picked up a controversial decision over Ray Borg in his UFC debut. So definitely some high-level MMA. He's got a win over another guy that's on this card this weekend um, who's making his UFC debut. I believe that is Brandon Royale who's fighting Tim Elliott. Uh, and Brandon Royale is kind of a similar fighter to uh, Louis Smoka. The thing about Smoka is I do think he's made some huge improvements. Uh, the reason he was on that losing streak back kind of leading into his exit from the UFC in his original stint is because he was going through alcoholism and he was having a lot of trouble four losses in a row and then he picked up a bunch of wins to come back to the UFC two and one now having lost to Matt Schnell Uh, I'm on the same page with you I like Casey Kenny but to be honest these odds are a little bit wide and I wouldn't be surprised if Lewis Smoka can surprise him he's he really has been putting his game together and he's going to be the significantly bigger man in that cage and as you said He's also the younger guy uh, with arguably higher level of overall UFC experience. So same page on that one. My next pick, I, I think uh, the, I'm not extremely it's confident. It's hard now. Yeah, it d- definitely gets harder. And after this pick, 
Um, every fight is essentially a pick 'em, give or take. Everything is uh, within, you know, maybe maybe minus 180 being the widest kind of range. But I am going to take Daniel Rodriguez to pick up the win over Gabriel Green. Rodriguez was going to fight Kevin Holland, who had to pull out due to injury. Rodriguez made his UFC debut and really shocked the world and beating longtime veteran, high-level fighter Tim Means. I mean, he smacked him hard in the end of that first round, knocked him down. Tim Means stumbled back to his corner. And then in that second round, hurt him again uh, somewhere in the middle, leading into a standing guillotine choke. Really, really impressive. For a guy to make his UFC debut against Tim Means and look that good, I mean, that's like one in probably 150 UFC debutants can kind of pull something off like that. So really impressive by Daniel Rodriguez, who trains with uh, Donald Cerrone's crew, if I remember correctly. He's facing Gabriel Green, who's not only taking this on extremely short notice, but he's also a smaller man who normally fights at, a, at a, I believe, 155 pounds. His last fight was at 165. But uh, I definitely like Daniel Rodriguez to take Gabriel Green, who's overall a decent fighter. He's got good stand-up. He's a tough guy. But Rodriguez, what he showed against Tim Means, it's hard to argue with. Same, same. And also in these in these circumstances, it just it seems weird to pick against a late replacement fighter who's swooping in. It's just a lot. There's a lot going on in the world right now. It's a hard thing to get a call and be like, "Yeah, I'm going to show up four days, you know, four days from now, cut weight, and get in there." Um, that is true. But I do believe that uh, Gabriel Green had a contender series fight booked for next month so there's oh, good reason okay. to believe he may have been training to begin with oh, i'm sure he was i'm sure he was training it's just the whole you know i was just thinking about the weight cut and like yeah going that. and fighting into an empty can is very surreal situation um even the travel like what that's going to take out of people if they haven't necessarily been expecting it but um so i'm with you i'm with you on that fight so four picks in and we had we would have had the same exact same four yes sir um first picks but now if, if now it's just like you said it's a bucket of pickums. Um, and I think I'm, oh man, this is, this is tricky because I'm right now I'm either going to go with the main event or the co-main event and I'm trying to decide which one. Go for it, buddy. Okay. I think, oh man, I hope this isn't like fanboyness, but I'm going to go with Blagoj uh, Ivanov to take out Augusto Sakal. I haven't been a big fan of Sakal. Uh, Sakai. Sakai, I'm sorry. Uh, Sakai uh, in his f- fights. He, and I pick, yeah, I actually picked uh, Tabura. Uh, I'm always butchering names. Uh, Tabura uh, to beat him. I was wrong about that. I just think, I think Ivanov's a better fighter. I think he's a. Be- I think I think that. Listen, I can't see him getting with the guys that he's fought. Going, he went went to a decision with Derek Lewis and Junior Dos Santos. I don't see this guy knocking him out. <laughs> and I feel like he's pretty much better you know better everywhere he's probably older um but i just think he's a better i think he's a i think he's a tough savvy veteran um and i like his game i just think he's a i think he's a a much uh a much stronger fighter and and sakai to me mostly just seems like a mediocre heavyweight i think i think ivanov's on a different level i'm surprised the line is so close here particularly after ivanov nearly beat the black beast yeah, I don't know if I would say that Ivanov nearly beat the Black Beast, but it was an arguably split competitive deci- fight. It's a split decision. Yeah, yeah, I do wonder what uh, MMA Decisions has to say about that. Um, I just feel like, if I remember correctly, Derek Lewis landed a whole, uh, just did a whole lot more damage, and I'm one to consistently favor damage over, you know, control. In fact, it, on MMA Decisions, Nick, every single journalist 
Gave it to Derek Lewis, either 29-28 or 30-27. So, yeah, even though it was a split decision. It was um, it was very competitive. It was a very yeah, competitive Yeah, fight. I, I hear that. It, yeah, it wasn't like a one-sided beating, um, especially considering Derek Lewis has fallen to a grappler or two in the past. But, yeah, look, Blagoy Ivanov is a high-level fighter. I agree with you. He's very fast. The problem is in this matchup, he's 5'11 against a 6'3 Augusto Sakai. Sakai is younger by four years, 29 to Ivanov's 33. Sakai is going to have a four-inch reach advantage. The thing that Blagoy Ivanov is going to have that I think will make quite a bit of difference is that he's faster. He, the guy is particularly fast on the counter. He doesn't necessarily get takedowns like you would imagine a high-level Sambo fighter uh, to, to, to get. Blagoy Ivanov, very few people know, back in the day when Fedor Emelianenko was undefeated at Pride FC, he was clearly the pound-for-pound best MMA fighter in the world clearly the best heavyweight on the planet, and he competed in Sambo and lost to Ivanov, and that was kind of the first blemish that we've seen on Fedor, really, uh, since he came into his prime in Pride. So Blagoy definitely has some credentials on him. I I do agree with you on the pick by an extremely small margin. This was going to be one of my last couple of picks. Uh, Sakai is a skilled heavyweight. I disagree that he's mediocre. I know that he arguably didn't deserve the decision against Andre Arlovsky in another overall close fight. Um, the speed discrepancy there was the issue, and it's the same thing here. The thing is, Arlovsky's more experienced and craftier than Ivanov, if only by a small margin. So I, I see why it's close. Um, I'm giving the slightest of edges to Ivanov simply because of his speed and the fact that he's a really good counterpuncher, and Augusto Sakai is going to throw his much slower hands, and Ivanov should be able to counter quickly even despite the reach advantage. But again, I could see it going either way. My next pick, Nikolai, I'm going to take... This is probably going to bite me in the ass, and I don't know why I have this one so high, but I'm going to take Tim Elliott to beat Brandon Royale, or maybe Roy Vall is his name. The thing about Roy Vall is that he's a really good jiu-jitsu guy against kind of meddling competition. Overall, decent stand-up, but he got taken down like half a dozen times at least uh, against the earlier mentioned Casey Kenny uh, a few fights ago. And I can see the same issue coming up against Tim Elliott. The thing is that Tim Elliott has been losing by submission to a few guys. And Brandon has some pretty tight submission skills. Like, he, he can really surprise you with some fancy stuff. I'm going to favor Tim Elliott's uh, high-level experience. I'm going to favor the fact that he can take mofos down. He's a really good wrestler. Uh, another thing is that I think both of these guys have trained with Glory MMA. Um, in the past, and I, I believe Tim Elliott's in Vegas now, but I wonder how that's going to factor in. Have they trained together? Have they been training partners? I know uh, certainly Brandon Royale's coaches know Tim Elliott well, so that could be kind of a little bit of a complicating factor, but I do like the veteran here to pick up uh, probably a decision win. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, <coughs> I'm with you more or less. I mean, Elliott for me is one of those guys that often snatches defeat from the jaws of victory. Um but I would pick – I'm going to – this is another one where I was on the fence. I think that the line is probably wider than it should be um, in this case. But I echo I echo your sentiments. Um, next, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to jump in and pick the main event here. Where, right. did you, where, did you, where did you have the main event on your list? I had it as one of my next two. Okay. This is a really tough one. In fact, as I stare – at these names, I'm not sure which one is going to tumble out of my, you know, mouth. <laughs> <Next>. <laughs> um, 
I love Gilbert Burns. He's a really, really exciting fighter. It's hard to erase that Woodley fight. I mean, I'm sorry, that Woodley's Usman fight. Uh, out, you know, from our brains, where he yeah, ba- he that. basically got he got big brothered for 25 minutes. Absolutely. And he is an elite, an elite wrestler with a dy- you know with a dynamite right hand. You would agree with both of those sentiments, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, he, he's he's a solid wrestler with a with insane power in the right hand. I do agree. Solid wrestler? You would consider? I mean, I think I just, he's I, I think he's like... above solid. I mean, he's not he's not at the, obviously he's not at the Usman. Um, He's not at the highest, highest level, but I think he's one level below that. I think well, it's, I mean, he's more than a capable grappler. I just think if you look at his last many fights, he's had zero takedowns in his last three fights. Darren Till, Damian Maya, Kumar Usman. Usman got two takedowns over him. He had um, one takedown in each fight against Steven Thompson. No takedowns in like the three fights prior to that. Um, he's an excellent, excellent defensive wrestler outside of that Usman fight, but he, I think he realizes, like Yal Romero, that he can't afford to keep going for takedowns. He's going to be exhausted three or four rounds in. So for that reason, it's kind of hard to judge him as an elite MMA wrestler like Usman is. And Usman was willing to take that chance, willing to keep getting those clean takedowns uh, against him. But I agree, he's, he's a good wrestler. It's... Uh... And he's been and he's definitely competed against the best competition. I I believe that the Woodley that's going to show up is the, is the Woodley that just uh, popped Till and and kind of taught him a lesson, and that somewhere in the mix and in Bur- in, in in Burns's kind of eclectic offense, he's that Woodley's going to land something. I think I th- I'm going to pick Tyron Woodley to to win this fight. I think that Bur- I think that Burns is really really good. Um, I think he'll be back, but I th- I believe that I don't think Tyron Tyron Woodley's done. Um, and he find and he most of the time finds a way to get out of fights against really challenging guys uh, with his hand raised. I could be wrong, and this could be like a replay of the old school Nate Marquardt Ty- Tyron Woodley fight where Gilbert Burns eventually just styles on Woodley somehow. Like I. But I'm gonna my my gut right now, and it could be like a heritage bias meeting guys who've been around for a long time that I've been watching forever versus guys that are new, you know, newer to my radar. But I believe that um, you know the Woodley uh, who who floored Young and Kim, the Woodley who floored Darren Till, the Woodley who melted Robbie Lawler. He's got a lot to prove after that fight. That was an embarrassing loss for a champion. It really was, especially for an insecure guy. It really, really was. Yeah. It, and he, yeah, he does like. So we'll see where his head is at. He could come back, and you know, it could be like a, a Rashad, a Rashad thing, where after Rashad reinvented himself after Machida and looked terrific against um, against Phil Davis and looked really, like, really acquitted himself quite well against John Jones for the majority of that fight. And then after he lost to Jones, like something happened. But I'd like to see in, in Tyron Woodley a kind of resurgence from embarrassment similar to what Rashad Evans was able to do uh, when he went to the Black Zillions following, uh, you know, getting hit cross-eyed versus uh, Leona Machida. So my pick's Tyron Woodley. So if your wish for him is accurate, Nick, Rashad Evans went one, two, he went two and... <laughs> I <laughs> two and seven after my, after that this, John Jones, uh, I'm, including I'm talking, that John Jones. Fight. I'm talking very specifically about the two fights 
like r- the right after Majita period, and not well, oh, yeah, after in that John case, Jones yeah, period. He, he did losing put four to, wins losing, together. That's lo- fair. Losing losing to John Jones created a completely different thing in Rashad Evans. But I'm talking about yeah, like when kidding. he came back, when he went to the Black Zillions, and the way that he embarrassed Phil Davis, which no one expected. No, you're right. He beat uh, Tiago Silva, Quentin Jackson, Tito Ortiz, and Phil Davis four wins in a row following that Machida uh, loss, and then most just just about everything went downhill unless he was fighting uh, like a really really aging uh, veteran. And, and know, yeah, and knowing what kind of guy he is emo- emotionally, because we've certainly gotten a sample of that over the years, to come back and do, to do that after that after that Machida defeat after zero title defenses showed. I mean that's a lot. That shows a lot of character to me. We'll see. What, we'll see. Yeah. Who, we'll see who we're going to learn a lot about Tyron Woodley on Saturday night. Yeah, I think we are. The thing is, Tyron Woodley's thirty-eight years old, right? He's no spring chicken. I never believed him to be the absolute best head and shoulders above everyone else. Well, no, I agree in the with world. that. I agree uh, with that. W- was he better than Damian Maya? Yeah, because the style matchup favored him. He can defend takedowns all day against the guy of Damian Maya's caliber. Um, Stephen Thompson. I think if Stephen Thompson fought smarter and was less afraid of the takedown in that right hand. I think Stephen Thompson uh, should be able to piece up Tyron Woodley. The thing with Thompson is, unless you're pushing forward at him, he's not that dominant. He doesn't do that well. And uh, Tyron Woodley's the type of guy to stay on the back foot for as long as humanly possible before hoping that you walk into his cracking right hand, right? Um Darren Till, you know, we we don't know that he's that high level of a fighter. Like, like, yeah, he recently got a win over Kelvin Gastelum. We probably didn't take him that seriously. Um, but we don't – I don't know if we have much reason to believe that Darren Till is elite. So I do think Stephen Thompson and Damian Meyer are his two best wins. Robbie Lawler's a good win too, don't get me wrong. But Stephen Thompson and Damian Meyer, he was only on a two-fight winning streak going into – including a split decision over Kelvin Gastelum before going into that title fight. So – you question whether he even deserved that title to begin with. I'm not a big fan of Tyron Woodley's. The thing is, and and I like Gilbert Burns. I'm not, re- quite a bit. I'm not really either, but yeah. I, and I, yeah, I, yeah, I, I same thing. I feel I feel I feel the same thing. I'm also I'm kind of rooting for him just as a human story. I don't dislike him, but I get your points. Yeah, like I just feel I, like Tyron Woodley when he's talking, he's doing one of two or three things. He's either talking himself up about his incredible accomplishments, et cetera, et cetera, mostly because he's insecure. He's either extremely defensive about stuff that he's done um, or failed in or he's just kind of being delusional about about the possibilities and where he is he's just like I'm I'm, again I'm not a big fan of his but here's the thing about Kilbert Burns as phenomenal as he's been looking ever since he went up to welterweight I mean if you look at his record the man has two losses I'm sorry three losses Nick his record is 18 and 3 that is fucking impressive for a guy that's been in the UFC for as long as he has. And Tyron Woodley with a record of 19-4-1. Damn solid, right? Very similar records these two men have. Tyron Woodley, slightly higher level, although Gilbert Burns has been competing in a, uh, in my opinion, tougher division at 155 the majority of his career. Here's the thing. The, the way that we saw Tyron Woodley lose and get dominated was by getting out-wrestled by a stronger, superior wrestler who has about as much power on the feet, who was smart enough to keep his head when uh, Kumar Usman went in for his takedowns, right? He could have gone in his regular way where his head kind of comes down the center path. He gets those legs and drags you to the floor. But he actually leaned to, Kumar Usman leaned to his own right side, away from Woodley's right hand. 
every time he went into that clinch for the takedown. And that really worked well because he kept himself out of danger. And the only thing that uh, Woodley could really could really uh, threaten him with. Now, Gilbert Burns, who's a training partner of Kumara Usman, right? There's reason to believe that these guys can put together, the Black Zillions can put together a game plan that can work in this matchup. Um, the problem is that Gilbert Burns doesn't have the same skills. Is Gilbert Burns going to take down Tyron Woodley? No, probably not. Is Gilbert Burns going to piece him up on the feet? He can. It's possible. The problem is that the last time Gilbert Burns was finished, the last time he lost against Dan Hooker, a lot of people think, and I thought that it was actually a knee by Dan Hooker that started the process of putting him out, but it was a counter right hand while Dan Hooker was in the orthodox stance, right? So Gilbert Burns went in for his 1-2 that he always throws, and he got clipped with a clean right counter. And that's exactly what Tyron Woodley is excellent at doing. Tyron Woodley can, like, he's not a great overall stand-up fighter. He just is good at stepping back and throwing that right. He has excellent defensive wrestling, right? He, it's extremely difficult to take him down if your name is not Kumar Usman. And the thing that Tyron Woodley, I think, is excellent at is top position ground and pound. He's scary from up top. He really is. If I was him... I would work that into my game plan in almost every fight. Like, if you can get on top of a guy, you can do real damage as Tyron Woodley. Um, he's a lot less afraid to be offensive from that position than he is just from kind of an even standing position. Um, again, judging by the fact that the last time that Burns lost was by getting countered with a clean right hand, I think that he's going to be taught and coached to avoid that. But I don't know if he's going to be able to. I think at some point, Woodley's going to be able to hurt him. At the very least, it'll score Woodley points. Um, Woodley gets really aggressive when he hurts you, man. He puts everything into finishing you once he buzzes you. And I expect that he should be able to finish Burns if that does happen. Now, if Burns is really careful about keeping his head off that center line, keeping his head off of his left side, uh, Tyron Woodley's right side, where Tyron can land that right hand, he can win this fight by just staying busy, by putting Woodley up against the fence. The thing about this event is that it's going to be held in a 25-foot cage, Nick. And the 30-foot cage is really the standard UFC cage. This is going to be different, right? Woodley's going to find himself with his back to the cage way quicker, way more often than he would in the bigger cage. Now, believe it or not, that might actually make his counter right hand a little bit more likely and maybe come a little bit quicker. So I do like uh, I do like Tyron Woodley here, but I really had a lot of trouble with this pick. And It's a tough and, uh, one. Yeah, it really is. And, and I wanted to pick Gilbert Burns. I just, just the style matchup favors Woodley in my opinion. And the fact that he's going to be the bigger, stronger man on paper. My next pick, Nikolai. I'm going to take... I'm probably going to regret this shit as well. I'm going to take Antonina Shevchenko to beat Caitlin Shukagin. Now, Caitlin's last loss, she got dominated by Shevchenko's older, older sister, who happens to be the best 125-pound fighter in the world, in the women's division at least. She couldn't help but throw offense at her, right? Caitlin Shukagin has changed her style, and she's recently been a lot more offensive, uh, more staying more in the pocket, and I think that's going to favor Shevchenko. Um, I also think it's going to favor Shevchenko that Shukagin, mentally, she just got completely obliterated by Antonina's older sister, and I think Shevchenko in the clinch is going to have a big advantage. I think that the fact that Shukagin is willing to exchange more is going to give Shevchenko a decent advantage. And Shevchenko's been looking pretty good on the floor, and Shukagin never goes for takedowns. So I like Antonina Shevchenko, but I realize this could be an extremely close split decision that could go either way. Yeah, I, I agree that it could that it could go either way. My experience of watching Shevchenko fight 
is like watching a lot of uh, fighters who come over um, as elite kickboxers is it seems that when it's a point kickboxing fight or they're a kicking range um, and sometimes in, you know, in, in clinch, uh, all of their instincts kick in and they know exactly what to do. But in those moments that make mixed martial arts, mixed martial arts, where style, where, where the fight's happening and techniques are, are merging and there's just kind of like the flow of the fight. I, I feel like she, like a lot of other kickboxers kind of freezes and that she can get caught in between and, and look and can look kind look can look kind of lost if a kickboxing fight isn't happening and if Chukagian's smart I think that she's I think she's probably the more complete mixed martial artist even though she's also a kickboxer um, so if if she can keep Shevchenko f- like trying to essentially keep up with the fight by virtue of you know just throw kind of throwing everything at her pushing the fight to different to different positions and having her change her mindset repeatedly i think that chukagian can win because it seems to me that shevchenko kind of short circuits in those scenarios and freezes we've seen i think we've seen that um so i think that there's a path to victory here for chukagian i just don't know um if she's going to execute if she tries to have a you know a point kickboxing fight with shevchenko it's close but she'll probably lose I will say, looking at uh, Shevchenko's stats right now, she has gotten a total of zero takedowns in her UFC career, and she has given up, let's see here, uh, seven, eight, nine, 14 takedowns during the course of her UFC career. She's actually won two decisions, Nick, in which she got outlanded by a notable margin against Irina Aldana, who's a fairly hard hitter, and Joanna Calderwood. This matchup is similar to that Joanna Calderwood matchup, I think. Calderwood was able to piece her up even though she got screwed on a decision. So, I, yeah, I mean, again, part of the reason I, uh, another part of the reason I favor Shevchenko, I just don't expect Chukagin to take it to the floor even though she trains with that Henzo Gracie team. We've never really seen high-level jiu-jitsu from her. And Antonina Shevchenko, at the very least in her last fight, showed some pretty, you know, pretty solid jiu-jitsu, both in that first and second round against Lucy Pudilova. So, largely, uh, I mean, are you... Um, like I know you don't officially have to make the uh, draft pick here, but uh, where are you kind of leaning in this one? Oh boy, maybe sl- slightly to Shevchenko, but I'm very interested to see if if Chukagian his game plan this correctly because she doesn't have to take her down. She has to have her thinking. Of, she has to short circuit her brain by virtue of getting her out of her out of her kickboxing comfort zone. Um, I just you know, feel like Matafari is a completely could, different animal when it comes to the style matchup, which is kind of, you know, which is kind of what you're you're expecting Shukagin, um can do well, here not, to win. Not exact, not exactly that. I mean, you know, you know what Roxy's going to do. Mm-hmm. Like Chukagian, Chukagian needs to do some cha- some chain MMA fighting where she doesn't let Shevchenko get comfortable in a kickboxing match. Yeah, I hear, I hear that. Um, I mean, that's I, a li- that's a that. little bit. It's it's. It's more, yeah. Chukagin's kickboxing will be better if she, you know, if she changes levels and fake and faints a takedown. Like, I just think that she needs to. And that's, that's not, you know, easier said than done. The thing to do is do do not just get in there and set, you know, a couple feet away from her and have and just have a point kickboxing fight. That would be the dumb. I think that's the dumbest strategy possible. And the only thing seen, Caitlin Chukagin is capable of. 
Well, that's the thing. I think she's ca- I think she's probably capable of more, but usually she believes that she has the advantage there. It's going to yep. be, does she have more tricks in her bag? I mean, you bring up the example of Calderwood. I think Calderwood is, is a much, much more well-rounded uh, fighter than Jukigian is and has expanded her bag of tricks substantially. But yeah, we'll that. see. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, let me ask you a question, though. Should Antonina Shevchenko, if she wins this fight, should she take on the nickname of brunette fighter because blonde fighter is just so creative for Caitlin Chukagan. Brilliant, brilliant nickname. I um I think she should just go with the other Shevchenko. <laughs> <laughs> that is very funny. I'll be honest with you, Nick, I have it on good authority that the Shevchenko mother does prefer the younger Antonina. She's just sweeter apparently as a daughter. Huh. She has fewer tattoos of guns. That, yeah, I hear that. All right. Uh what's your next pick, buddy? Oh crap, it's my pick. <laughs> yes, I got so, I got so into discussing uh, your pick. All right, I'm gonna start rattling, uh, rattling some of these off here. I'm gonna go with uh, Jamahal Hill over over Clidson Abreu. I like uh, I like both these guys. I like Hill. I just like Hill's size. He just seems like one of those. He seem he just seems like a prospect. I feel like this is a pretty, uh, a pretty good like prospect fight, and I expect him um, to you know get pulled in deep water a little bit. But have enough have enough success to get a decision. I think this goes goes all three rounds. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's likely enough to go to decision, except for the fact that Jamal Hill in his UFC debut faced, uh, you know, a very unsuccessful UFC fighter, right? Who's significantly shorter, and almost every big bomb that he tried to throw against Jamal Hill, uh, Darko Stosic was able to land, and every takedown that Darko wanted to land, he was able to get. He just wasn't able to keep Hill down. Hill was doing a really good job of getting back up. And Hill's output, by the way, is insane. Like, he throws, he lands something like eight strikes per minute, throws something like 16 per minute. And most of these are hard, straight shots. Uh, Really, uh, again, I see him as a prospect. He's a really good southpaw, very tall for 205. I believe he's 6'4". Clinton Abreu, however, he gets takedowns in almost all of his fights. Um, he should actually, instead of being one and two in the UFC, he should be two and one. He beat Sam Alvey, and he should have gotten a clear-cut decision over uh, Shamil Gamzatov in his last fight. He lost a split in that one. His only loss in the UFC should be to super prospect Magomed Ankalaev, which is nothing to be ashamed of. And I think he broke his nose er- early in that fight. He took it on kind of late notice and still showed a lot of hard kept fighting like the nose wasn't broken at all so props to him i think that Klitson abreu who's been really good about getting takedowns in his ufc career thus far he got one against uh Gonzamatov, he got one against sam alvey and sam alvey's incredibly hard to take down um i think he should be able to take down jamal hill and the question is can he keep him down abreu is a jiu-jitsu world champion his nickname is the russian terror because he was on that russian scene kicking ass before his made his ufc debut so he's beaten, he's faced and beaten a lot of high-level Russian prospects. I just feel like Jamal Hill's takedown defense is going to be a liability here. And the fact that Abreu has excellent jiu-jitsu, it's a bad combination on top of the fact that Abreu tends to get takedowns. So I do like Abreu by a small margin, but Jamal Hill, in my opinion, is a real, real prospect. And he's a bit of a, an interesting character, too. So I do look forward to him competing again and wouldn't be shocked at all if he picks up a, a close decision victory here. So you're picking uh, your but your pick is extra large gasolum, extra large gasolum indeed. Although some would say extra large Rafael dos Anjos. My next, you pick, think so? I think he looks way more like gasolum, but okay. 
No, I, I do. Yeah, yeah. I guess I guess it could sort of go either way, but I do hear you. Um, my next pick, Nick. We're down to the last couple of fights. Your your pick after this one is going to be the tiebreaker. Um, I'm going to I'm going to take in the Chris Gutierrez versus Vince Morales matchup. I think Vince Morales is a really crafty, solid stand-up fighter. He has a crack of a right hand, and he got screwed in his last fight. Uh, when he lost that decision. Chris Gutierrez, however, was in the opposite position, right? He got a bit of a gift decision in his last UFC bout. Gutierrez, of course, was facing off with uh, Geraldo DeFratis, and, you know, he was able to land some leg kicks, and DeFratis kind of plopped his butt a couple times, and I think that's what swayed the judges in his favor, whereas Morales, I thought, was piecing up Benito Lopez, hurt him badly in that first round, knocked him down, still lost the decision somehow, a lot of folks disagree with that one. Um, I think Morales is the overall better fighter. I think he's overall the more fun fighter to watch. <clears throat> but in this style matchup, I think Gutierrez might have the slight edge because Gutierrez is the guy who stays at a distance just throwing continuous kicks, just nonstop kicks. Pretty good gas tank for that sort of style, which you kind of have to have. Whereas Vince Morales is more of a counter boxer. who's um, pretty dangerous with some knees as well, but I don't know that... He'll find Gutierrez in range enough to counter him effectively. I think Gutierrez should be able to keep plop, you know, keep just bitter pitter pattering him with kicks from a distance, and probably pick up a decision that way. So, I'm giving Gutierrez the slightest of edges and uh, leaving the uh, Billy Quarantillo versus Spike Carlisle matchup to you. Okay, I'm gonna. So that's the this is the tiebreaker. Yes, sir. All right, I'm gonna go with, with Spike Carlisle. I like I like. He just seems like he's insane. <laughs> and I, I kind of dig him. Uh, who do you um, have in the uh, Morales versus oh, Gutierrez? Oh, the Morales fight. Who you, you went with? You went with Gutierrez? Or are you yeah. with Morales? Yeah, okay, I I'm going with Gutierrez. Yeah, I'm. Oof. I'll pick Gutierrez also. Yeah, I, I, I. This one I had a lot of trouble with. I initially picked Billy Quarantillo. Um, guy's got a really, just a really offensive pressure style. He tends to overwhelm guys, if not early, certainly by the mid range of that fight. He just puts so many numbers on you. That guys eventually wilt. In his contender series bout, he was actually dominated a bit in that first round, taken down almost at will, and then ended up overwhelming his opponent by the, I think, by the second round. Ended up being able to finish him. Spike Carlisle is a really opportunistic finisher. Like the guy is known as a judo guy and a, and a jiu jitsu guy, right? He's apparently got a great ground game. But man, when he cracks people, they drop, man. He's got head kick knockouts. Knockouts with his hands. His UFC knockout uh, ended up being with him, with this weird angled elbow. He's a wacky character. One of the things that I really like about Spike, even though he's going to be the shorter man in this matchup, he's used to fighting taller opponents. He's used to finishing taller opponents, right? But he trains with uh, Benil Daryush and and Jiga uh, Jigadze. You know, a couple of fairly high level UFC fighters, especially Daryush, really really high level guy. Um, so I, I like Spike's training situation i like the fact that he's a real opportunistic finisher on the feet and the fact that he's a really good grappler so i think judging by billy quarantillo's uh contender series fight i think spike carlisle should have some sex here uh some success here he's a real wacky dude like uh like very very into jesus christ and all that but a real interesting character spike is i think his nickname is the alpha ginger which i'm very much into uh yeah i I like spike carlisle in this matchup but i do see it as a as a close one that will do it for our picks nikolai you i i think you might have a pretty good chance 
of winning another round on this one. I think we might end up 7-3 and three this time next week. I just feel like a lot of these fights are pickums, and it's not common that our first four picks are exactly the same. Uh, this turned out to be the case here. I usually get my like three or four of my top four picks, and... And that wasn't the case here, so I could see it easily. Well, going I mean, either I way. really think that one. I mean, one and two were pretty obvious. Here. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And that. I think we've talked. We've talked enough about Kenny that I'm not surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, but we could also we could also be wrong on that one. I could see. I mean, Smolka could very well win that fight. It's a it's a, you know, there's um, there's a lot of pickums as you said. Yeah, I hear that definitely. Um, we're going to take a break, come back, and uh, give you guys our betting recommendations. I had. Uh, I ended up being in the profit margin from the last event, and I expect to make some money on this one as well. We'll be back, folks. Back on the MMA Geeks Sea Level Podcast to give you guys our MMA Geeks betting guide. Nikolai, the last event, the Harris versus Overeem event, I ended up getting screwed on that Vera fight. Uh, that would have been a, a $50 win for me. Instead, I end up with a $6 profit. It's not much. I will take it. Uh, St. Peru ended up tiring out in the second half of his fight. That would have been another 50 bucks. but uh, them's is uh, the game. That's how it rolls. I ended up picking up wins with Drew Dober, Alistair Overeem, and uh, Giga Chigazzi. In this one, Nick, I'm not making a whole lot of bets. Uh, like, I don't see a whole lot of opportunity here given these odds. I think there's a lot of close pickums. I am, however, recommending a bit of an investment into Spike Carlisle. Uh, $40 to win 52 bucks on that one. I just feel like, uh, again, I, I said it in the last segment, he's he's a real opportunistic finisher, and I think athle- athleticism is going to be in his favor on top of the fact that he has higher-level training partners. And then... Um, uh, Abreu, uh, Klitsen Abreu over Jamal Hill, 40 bucks to win 46. I just feel like the fact that he's a jiu-jitsu world champion and Jamal Hill got gave up so many takedowns against a fairly low-level uh, UFC fighter, uh, I think will give Abreu the avenue to win, even though I could certainly see Jamal uh, coming back with the win here. So I figure if I win one and lose one of these, I'm still going to end up with a profit. If I win both, then uh, we're rolling and, and we're doing well. Um, Nikolai, any betting recommendations for our dozens and dozens of listeners? I, you know, I'm probably not going to wager on this card, but the the bets that I think are most interesting are these these you know plus a hundred, plus two hundred underdogs, worth putting some pennies on a Brayu Carlisle. Um, there was one other, perhaps uh, Chukagian, maybe. I mean, at minus 135, Shevchenko, eh, I guess I would bet the underdog in that fight, Chukagian, but, um, no, you know, nothing that's that's screaming as a enormous opportunity. Yeah, I hear that. Now, uh, we do have UFC 250 coming up next week, and you and I have already discussed the fact that, you know, it doesn't look like the best card in the world, uh, but they did finally fill up the entire card. It's actually came up pretty well. Like, it's a good card. Is it worth 60 bucks? Probably not, especially with the Amanda Nunes versus Felicia Spencer matchup being at the top of that one. Uh, co-main event, Rafael Sansao versus Cody Garbrandt, a solid fight there. Aljamain Sterling versus Corey Sanhagen, a phenomenal fight, I think. Magni versus Rocco Martin, that's a decent fight. Sean O'Malley, the veteran, who will pick up wins over these prospects uh, as, as just like the gritty veteran with a lot of power in his right hand, versus Sean O'Malley. 
just that kind of matchup exactly. Alex Caceres versus Chase Hooper. Good test for Hooper, I think. Ian Heinich versus Gerald Mirchart. Cody Stamen versus Brian Kelleher. Kelleher making a quick turnaround for that one. Charles Bird versus Maki Pitolo. Uh, Formiga Perez and uh, Alonzo Menefield versus Devin Clark. Definitely, you know, some interesting matchups there. I just don't know that it's worth the price tag. What the hell is Juicer Formiga doing on Fight Pass early Dude, prelims? Dude, like the UFC does not promote 125 pounds at all whatsoever. They always do this. We got two highly ranked guys here all the way in the Fight Pass prelims, and this is consistent, Nick. They never give these flyweights the true opportunity, and you can see it in the way that uh, Dana White treats Henry Cejudo. I know he's at 135 more, most recently, but these little guys, they don't matter to Dana. Like, he doesn't take them that seriously. Henry Cejudo saying he's going to retire, I assume, is a negotiating point. Dana White's like, okay, he's retired. Let's make a matchup uh, between um, Jose Aldo and Peter Yan for the 135-pound yeah. title. I, I, got um, a pre- I got a pretty good feeling how that's going to go. Uh, you you think Peter Yan is gonna? Yeah, probably. Yeah, yes. But I think Peter. I think Peter. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I think. Look, I think, we we have to factor in the fact that Jose Aldo has not looked bad at all in any of his fights except late against Max Holloway, and like literally the very elite at 145 is what it took to to beat him. And early on, he was looking pretty good there. Um, and and then you know making his 135 pound debut, he looked pretty good overall. You would think, right? Whereas uh, Marais Mar- Mar- was pretty was pretty on him. For the um, for the first round, and then Aldo took over when Marais gassed, is my recollection. Well, yeah, but but then but, Marais, in my opinion, did enough in that third round to win. But still, it was a very close fight with a with a high level 135 pound opponent, top two or three. And we got to consider that Peter Yan he struggled. If he hadn't didn't get takedowns against uh, uh, Rivera, is it? Um, he. Like, like he would have lost that decision. Like so. Yeah, Jimmy Rivera is a very tricky. He's a tricky puzzle. He wasn't really in trouble against him, though. We'll see. No, no, I but he clearly a, was a, getting outstruck, uh, except know, for I those think, knockdowns. I think. In a, I think Aldo will engage in a firefight, and I believe he will lose that firefight. But we'll see. To be honest, I, I'm still going to root for Aldo in this matchup. But uh, look, you're probably right. Peter Yan's going to be a favorite, and probably for good reason. I just. I would be surprised if he was a large favorite. I think anything more than a minus 140, minus 150 is worth investing into Aldo. Yeah, I agree. Um, um, other news, uh, Cody Covington's finally out of a- uh, ATT. It took him long enough. Yeah, no joke. Given all the controversy, given that Dan Lampert, uh, owner of ATT, like, made that rule where fighters couldn't talk shit about each other on the team, and he just continued to do it. So I guess it's not super surprising. But props to him for sticking to his word, Dan Lampert. Um, what do you think this does for Covington? I mean, he's literally trained his entire career with this team. Uh, it's a high-level team with high-level coaches, about as good as it gets in MMA, in my opinion, the best. And where is he going to go? Like, what team is going to open their arms to this guy who talks shit about, you know, who might talk shit about their coaches who probably has already made enemies in that camp? Um, what do you think is going to happen to Garbrandt next? Or to Covington. To Covington, um, yeah. You know, I, I, really, I really don't know. Here's what I, I wouldn't be surprised if Covington was already looking beyond fighting. He's, uh, you know, I hate him, but he's got a gift for the gab. Probably if Donald Trump is defeated, Donald Trump's going to start some sort of horrible, uh, you know, even like right of right media network Um I could see, I could actually see uh, Covington becoming some kind of, you know, looking at the looking at the Rogan money, um, looking at like the right wing podcast space in general. 
I, I could actually see Covington already getting into media personality mode, to be honest. I mean, he just I doesn't have the personality. He doesn't actually have the gift of gab. He just has some well, pro can, wrestler fan like writing shit for him. He doesn't deliver it well, but he says horrible things about people, so it makes yeah, enough noise. He's I got mean, like X Pac heat. He doesn't have like, you know, like he doesn't uh, have like I, a good heel heat. Uh, a lot of people like him. Like him? Yeah, a lot. I think a, I think a lot of like who likes him? Yeah, I think a, I think Wonder Wonderbread like. Right wing white dudes like Covington. I mean, I don't, I don't know, dude. Like his pay per views don't do that well, right? Like, I don't think he's, he's a su- I don't think he's a superstar, but he's. Listen, I mean, he's the one that's in that's in Trump's office. I mean, I think they're very aware of him. I mean, all you and have to do is to, to be in Trump's office. He's a is bro. Be he's be a-, a semi celebrity in the last sixty years of of American life or really world life, and like literally Gary Busey is like somebody Trump touts as like a a big supporter. Like, who gives a shit? Like Colby Covington, I know that Trump is willing to doubt whoever supports him, right? No matter, no matter like where Gary, they are in yeah. life. I like Gary Busey a lot more than I like Colby Covington. But, um, no, I, I, I do hear that, but I just feel like Colby I, Covington is not a great talker. Like you see that interview with Ariel Hawani where he announced his split from ATT. Like I did he, not see it. Like uh, I'm going to very loosely quote him here. He said something like uh, Ariel Hawani was like, "So uh, you know, when did this happen? This split from ADT?" And Cody was like, uh, "You know, uh, I don't know. You'd have to ask Dan Lampert that. Uh, I'm going to trust you being the journalist of the decade and to use journalism and to journalist your way and figuring this out. Like he's not at all clever. Oh. He's not eloquent. But he's does he have? But does he have to be? I mean, I." Okay, when I say the gift of gab, I mean he's kind of he's figured out a way to get eyes on him. He's playing the game. It isn't a pro wrestling style. He's probably not as he's not as articulate as Sonin is. I just think I mean, if I'm even, him, not even one, what do you, what do you, how are you gonna how are you gonna make your money by leaning by leaning into this like cesspool of right wing media or he's by an extremely getting your jo- getting your jaw broken by car by Kamaru Usman again. Well, Kamaru Usman is a motherfucking no badass. He has, no te- he has no team right now and he has no fight. Oh, I'm not making fun of Usman. I'm saying I don't know that. I'd be very. I just. I wouldn't be surprised if it was, if uh, Covington starts to take steps away from fighting. He's an extremely high level fighter. He's an extremely hard worker. Like he he's so good at this MMA shit. And if it wasn't for Usman, he probably would have been the best welterweight in the world right now. But I don't know. I'd be shocked if he suddenly thinks that he can like he can gain a real following in the right wing media space. Like he's not bright. It's and... a. Pr- it's a. It's a prediction. I don't. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe it'll happen. Maybe maybe it won't. I just I don't know. He never he doesn't really seem like a guy that he doesn't he doesn't fight that often. Now he doesn't have a camp. Nobody likes him. Um, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be hard for him to gain his footing in the MMA space. But again, the fact that he's a hard worker alone and he does have a f- high 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 output, like he's he, apparently he fights super less disciplined than twice a year. Over the yeah. last five years, he's fought less than twice a year. Yeah, that's at least in part because he Over was waiting for a title years. shot, and there was negotiations with the UFC that were that was going kind of back and forth. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I, I just I would be shocked if he does even okay in that right wing media space. Like just supporting Trump is not enough. Like you've gotta you've gotta have some kind of a thing. Like you, you gotta be either really smart, like Ben Shapiro, or you've gotta be a character like Trump. Like you gotta have something. Whereas all he has is that he's willing to say anything except that he mumbles his way through it and doesn't really do a good job like again he's yeah. a heel right he, everybody he hates like him a girl, girls gone wild meets alex jones kind of personality 
But I, I, I guess, yeah. I, I just maybe, feel like he, yeah, maybe not. Don't maybe it's all shit just to support him? his fighting. I hate, I, I hate the guy. I never want to see him again. I don't want him. I don't want to watch him fight. I don't want to support. Uh, I don't want to buy pay per views that he's on. I mean, yeah. I will. Well, that's the thing. People don't want to buy his pay per views. He doesn't get like people don't want to see him lose. Like they want to see Floyd Mayweather lose. People well, hate him. But yeah, this, is cause, that's cause, this is all because he's mostly a wrestler. If Colby Covington was a fault like Conor McGregor, he would Oh, yeah. Oh, 100%. Agreed. That would definitely go a long way. But that's the thing. He doesn't have really the exciting style, nor does he have, like, a whole lot of cleverness or likability or true charisma. He just has the, the fact that he's actually a really good fighter, not the most exciting, and the fact that he's willing to say whatever it takes. But, uh, yeah, I guess that'll do for my Colby Covington rant. Nikolai, another one in the books. Seven, two, and one in my favor, as we should be. The king is back, and it feels good, Nick. It feels good. What was that word from earlier in the in the podcast? I just want us to practice it a few more times. What was? <laughs> uh, was <laughs> what was the? Fun? I, I actually can't remember what the word was. <laughs> Conveniently. Sorry. Uh, in, inex, inexplicable, yes, Nick. It, oh, if I slow it down, I can pronounce it. It's inexplicable. So like, like you're gonna be feeling next week, Nick. Your victory, your victory over me, your regaining of the crown was inexplicable. Yeah, except I won't say it as quickly or as smoothly as you just did. But now you found my one weakness, Nick. It's not picking fights. It's not the <laughs> gift of gab, Nikolai. It is that's, the that's single. The first, that's the first word you've ever tripped over. But I, 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 I jumped, <laughs> I jumped on that shit as quickly. Oh, as you, I you really did, man. If I jumped on you every time you fucked up like a Brazilian or a Russian name. Uh, yeah. This entire show would have been about that long. I mean, Jamal. Nick, Nick you, you called him Jamal Ball Hill. Come on, Nick. The H is silent. Jamal Ball.